I'm a member here um, at the church and on the team. This week, uh, Trevor's getting a little breather. Uh, we are kicking off a great new series uh, next week on church culture. And so he's kind of taking the week off to prepare for that. And so in the meantime, church, you are stuck with me. Uh, but I want to I welcome you for being here. If this is your first time, uh, please mark it in your calendars to come back uh, next week to hop in to that new series with us. But if this is your first time here or you've been with us for 30 years, we're simply a church with a massive vision, a vision of a Los Angeles in which every single person has experienced the life-changing power of the gospel. Because we think the gospel truly changes our lives from the inside out. And so we want to be really intentional about making a really, really big deal about Jesus. We want him to be the center of everything that we do. We want to know him better. And we think that as we set our eyes on Jesus and we put more of our faith and our hope in Jesus, we begin to grow in faith. And as we grow and he begins to shape us and change us and transform us, we become the kinds of people that go out and serve the world. We serve in our homes better. We serve in our workplaces better. We serve in the church better. We serve this city better. And you know, one of the things I love about this church is the great history and legacy it has in serving the nations. We've been a, a church that sends people out all over the world to serve those that have not heard the gospel. And so as we continue in our, you know, our James series this morning and actually wrap it up, just a brief recap of where we've been. You know, this past winter, we were in the gospel of John, looking at the works and the teachings of Jesus. And as we looked at his works and his teachings, it, it kind of launched us into Lent. This 40-day march to the cross that takes us all the way to Easter, in which we remember the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so now as we're kind of post-resurrection, post-Easter, we're looking at some of the, the early church writings, as some of the early followers and apostles of Jesus write to communities all over Asia Minor, instructing them on this new faith. When James writes his book, he makes it really clear who he's writing to at the very beginning of the book. He says, this is for the 12 tribes of Israel scattered among the nations. Most notably, this book is concerned with being doers of the word. These congregations that had been scattered had certainly in some way, shape, or form heard about this faith heard about Christ, heard about discipleship, but there's always this gap between what we've heard and what we do. What we know and how we act on what we know. And so when James write this, writes this, he's writing to encourage these congregations, don't just be hearers of the word, do what it says. And so this morning we're wrapping up this letter that James has written. And so just a recap of where we've been. James 1 again makes this plea to congregations. Don't just be hearers of the word, do what it says. In James 2, he makes the case that these congregations, as they enact and do and practice the word, a part of that should be don't show favoritism in your congregations. James 3 makes the case that these congregations should see private righteousness as more important than displaying public righteousness to folks. 
James 4 continues to make this case on how to act on the word, and he encourages these congregations, hey, don't be arrogant. Don't be boastful. Don't be proud of the plans that you have in your own heart. Instead, you should say simply, man, if the Lord wills it, we will do it. And as we land the plane, no pun intended on that plane flying above us, as we land the plane today, where James is making this final plea to congregations. Hey, don't just be hearers of the word. Do what it says. And even in your doing of the word, just ensure congregations that when you gather, you're praying together. And when you're praying together, the prayers aren't lifeless or empty or void, but instead these prayers ought to be filled with faith. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. And we're going to see James make a call really for three kinds of prayers. First is for the idea that our prayers ought to be priestly, in a sense. Secondly, our prayers ought to be pointed, in a sense. And finally, our prayers ought to be for prodigals as well, in a sense. James chapter 5, 13 through 20, priestly prayers, pointed prayers, and prodigal prayers. Yeah, as you turn there, uh, I want to start with this. It's important in life to not be tone deaf in various seasons. It's important in life not to be tone deaf in congregations, in, in, in situations and in conversations. Uh, there's this idea that in life, when you're interacting with somebody, you ought to interact appropriately. If they're in a down season and they're sharing hard with something hard with you, you shouldn't be, well, man, brother, sister, that's great. It's so good to see you. You ought to be with them in a, in a season. And if they're, they're celebrating something with you, a new relationship, a job promotion, a vacation coming up, you ought to not be the Eeyore in the conversation. Well, I'm glad your life is great because mine just kind of stinks right now. It's important to not be tone deaf. In fact, one of my favorite scenes that kind of illustrates this is from a baseball movie called Moneyball. This new front office executive has taken over the, the Oakland A's, and man, in this season, the Oakland A's are bad. That they're really, really bad. And he's just kind of taken over, and he's trying to find his way. And it's after this game, and they are in this really deep losing streak. And he's just down the hall from the locker room, and he's having a conversation with the manager or some other executives. And he kind of begins, he kind of hears the, the thud of music down the hall. And he's thinking, what, what is that thud of music, and so he kind of gets up and he walks to the locker room, and the baseball players have music blaring, they're dancing, they're giving high fives, they're having a grand old time after they have lost this game in the midst of a deep, deep losing season. This front office executive can't handle it. For him, this is being absolutely tone deaf to the season the team is in, and so you know he walks in and. He doesn't say anything. He just grabs a baseball bat. He knocks over this big old water jug, and it gets the attention of everybody. And everybody turns and just kind of stares at him. It's real quiet. 
And he leans in and does this. And he says, that's what losing sounds like. It's this mic drop moment for Billy Bean in which he walks out and he's encouraging his team, hey, don't be tone deaf. There are seasons that require certain responses from us and other seasons that require other responses. As James lands the plane on this letter, he's encouraging them to hear the word, do the word, practice the word, and saying, hey, and for all of you in this congregation, in these congregations, life is not always going to be rainbows and unicorns. Life is not always going to be easy. Sometimes it will, and sometimes it won't. Sometimes you'll be on the mountain peak and sometimes you will be in the valley. And James says, act accordingly. This is James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? This word trouble is the idea for general catastrophes that tend to roll into our lives. And James, knowing that catastrophes aren't reserved for certain groups of people, rich, or poor, male, or female, in this context, Jew or Gentile, it didn't matter, trouble was coming your way. And when trouble came your way, don't brush it under the rug. Don't, tell pe- don't not tell people about it. When you encounter people, don't just say, oh, everything's great, everything's fine, everything's wonderful. And instead he says, when any of you is in trouble, you ought to go to the Lord. Go pray. Don't fake it till you make it, if you will. At the same time, James says, life isn't going to be just kind of not good for all of you all the time. For many of you, great things are going to happen. It continues in James chapter 5, second half of 13. Is anyone among you happy? Is anything good happening in your life? Is there anything that's bringing a smile to your face? If you're happy, then sing songs of praise. One bishop, when he reads this, says, prayer and praise, these are great comforts to the Christian. Another theologian talks about this idea of singing. He says, it seems natural to give expressions of high spirits in singing at a birthday party, after you've won a baseball game after something fantastic has happened and the the sunroof is back and you're singing your favorite song. This is natural, but it's characteristic of the Christian community that their singing isn't in void, it isn't empty, it isn't to nothing or to themselves. Their singing actually takes the shape and the form of praise to God. James chapter 5, verse 14, it turns up the heat just a little bit. Certainly for the congregation in general, catastrophes are going to roll in and they ought to go to the Lord in prayer. For the congregation, good things are going to happen and they ought to praise God and sing joyful songs. Then it says in verse 14, but some of you may become sick. And if any one of you is sick, it says, let them call the elders of the church. In other words, don't just pray alone. Don't be alone in your sickness, but call the elders of the church to pray over them. Anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And then watch this. This is verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. 
The Lord will raise them up, and if they've sinned, they will be forgiven. It wouldn't have been untrue in the first century that there was a connection between sin and being sick. Now, the first century, they, they knew that life was gray enough and complex enough to know that just because you were sick didn't mean that you had sinned. And just because you were not sick didn't mean that you had not sinned. But there was a general idea. It, it might be that you're sick because you have sinned. And so these prayers for healing also accompany these confessions of sin that the person might be physically made well, might be physically raised up from their sickbed, but also that their sins would be forgiven. And then James kind of turns a little bit. He says, hey, if you're, if you're sick, if things are bad, call the elders. Have them come pray for you. They'll do this, this old kind of historic practice of anointing you with oil, and that person will be made well. They will be raised up. Their sins will be forgiven. And then he kind of turns it broadly to the, conversa- the congregation. It says, therefore, confess your sins, not just to the elders and not just to the Lord, but confess your sins to each other. The folks in your home, the folks in your community group, the folks sitting next to you this morning. Confess your sins to each other, and when you hear that confession, pray for each other. Why? That you might be healed. There's this interplay, this back and forth between the prayer of healing accompanies the forgiveness of your sins. And confessing your sins accompanies being healed. For James, somehow, at times, these are deeply interconnected and woven together. Then he switched gears and he says, the prayer of a righteous person, when you've confessed your sin to them, when you've asked for prayers for healing, the prayer of a righteous person, it's powerful. It works. It actually is effective towards the person you're praying for. This idea of going to somebody to confess your sins that you might be forgiven, confessing your sins that you might be healed, it reminds me of this idea of the power of attorney. The power of attorney is this idea that somebody can act in your stead. If you're not present, there can be someone you've appointed that can sign paperwork for you make decisions for you, essentially be a representative to somebody else for you. And James is saying in James chapter 5, these final verses, that we ought to exercise a little bit of power of attorney with one another. We ought to exercise a bit of priestness with one another. The priest in the Old Testament oftentimes heard the confession of sin went to the Lord on their behalf. In a sense, the priest was not just a mediator between the person and to God, but also reflected God back to the person. And so there's this subtle hint of this idea that as brothers and sisters, we ought to be mediators, hearing sin, representing God to our brothers and our sisters. This is what Exodus chapter 19, verse 6 says about God's people being priests. This is Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom, a nation of priests, holy and set apart. 
This is a long time before the early church. But in 1 Peter, Peter picks up this same theme. He says, you also church, you're living stones. You're a spiritual house, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Augustine, when reflecting on what James is talking about here, says the Lord himself sets an example for us in this. For if he who neither has nor had nor ever will have any sin prays for our sins, how much more ought we to pray for each other's sins? And if the one whom we have nothing to forgive forgives us, how much more should we forgive one another knowing that we cannot live on earth without sinning? In other words, the one who has no sin has forgiven us, so we ought to forgive one another. And the one for whom we have nothing to forgive He generously forgives us, and so we ought to forgive one another. Um, More specifically, I love how Bonhoeffer says this in one of his classic books, Life Together. If you haven't gotten it, it's a fantastic read. And Bonhoeffer is riffing on this idea of confessing sins to one another. And he's riffing specifically on John chapter 20, verse 23. In which Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And Bonhoeffer kind of riffs on this idea, John 20, 23, similar to James in confessing sin to one another. And Bonhoeffer says, now our brother stands in Christ's stead for us. Through Christ, not on his own, but through Christ, our brother has become Christ for us. In the power and authority of the commission Christ has given to the church. Our brother and sister stands before us as the sign of truth and as the grace of God. Our brother and sister has been given to us to help us. He hears the confession of our sins in Christ's stead and he forgives our sins in Christ's name. He keeps the secret of our confession as God keeps it. You see, when I go to my brother or sister to confess, I'm actually going to God. This is a really powerful idea that the confession of our sin to one another actually gives us the opportunity to hear from God through our brother or sister that we're forgiven. This is why confession and prayer is so important. I love that this worship team leads us through a time of confession every Sunday. There's something really powerful, really important, really necessary about simply going to the Lord directly without a mediator to confess your sin and be forgiven by the Lord. It's also a powerful practice to go to your brother or sister, confess your sin to them and hear them speak in God's stead. You are forgiven. And so visiting one another in each other's homes to hear confession and to pray is powerful. 
Meeting up in coffee shops to hear confession to pray is powerful. Being on a car ride home from work and calling somebody for confession and prayer is powerful. Being in a community group and confessing sin and getting prayer, it's powerful. So one of my questions for you this morning is, is who do you need to go to? What person do you need to go to this week and confess your sins that you might hear the words, you're forgiven? And to whom do you need to be open and available to hear the confession of sin and pronounce over them, you're forgiven? James is encouraging us that our prayers ought to have a priestly nature to them. The hearing of confession and the speaking of forgiveness over them. That's point number one. Point number two, our prayers should have a, a pointed nature to them. James has just got, saying, got done saying, uh, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and it's effective. And he transitions into verse 17. And he talks about Elijah, which is this massive Old Testament prophet who has all these works under his belt. And when James talks about him, what he doesn't say is, Elijah was quite a bit different from you, so don't even think about emulating him. Elijah was more righteous and more holy and just a bit better than you, so, so don't even think that your prayers can be as powerful as his were. Instead, James says in verse 17, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. But in his humanity, he prayed. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. This one right here? Perfect. Thank you, sir. It says, he prayed that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, and it didn't rain. And after three and a half years, he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. You see, in this interesting season that James is speaking about in the life of Elijah, the problem isn't that it wasn't raining. The problem is that there were no crops. The problem isn't that there wasn't water falling from the sky. The problem is the land wasn't being fruitful. In other words, Elijah's prayers were pointed in this moment. Not generic prayers for just a sense of character, which is good, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but Elijah's prayers are pointed towards a specific cause and effect. It reminds me of tug of war. In high school, I loved watching tug of war at our fifth grade track meets. And there was strategy to tug of war. Oftentimes, the coach would size up the other team and they'd say, okay, this, for the first few minutes when they kind of, you know, say go, we don't want to pull back. We just want to stalemate the folks. We want to be very stoic. We want to dig our feet in and allow the other team to wear themselves out. Two or three minutes go by of just a stalemate of tug of war. And then at some point, the coach gives the signal and the whole team does a step back and pulls one way and the other side pulls forward. There was this idea in tug of war, there's two strategies. First, to be stoic and stale and wait for the other side to wear them out. But then to pull them back across the line. Our sins, our, sins, our prayers that time, they're the same way. 
you see, there's a really, really good time and an appropriate time and a frequent time simply to pray, God, would you shape my character more and more and more? God, would you make me more patient with my spouse, more patient with my kids, more patient with my boss and my coworkers? God, would you make me more loving? Would you make me more kind? Would you make me all the things? Just shape me, God, from the inside that I might look more like you. Man, there's a place for that. And there's a place for that on a regular basis. And there's also a place for prayers that are pointed to say, God, would you bring fruit from these actions? Certainly, I want to be patient with my kids. God, make me more patient. And God, would you produce the fruit of obedience in them? God, I I, want to serve and love and be patient in the workplace. And God, would that patience and that workplace and that ethic, would that actually bring about promotion? See, there's a sense for James that he's saying, you should pray for your character. Internal prayer is important, but your prayers can also be pointed to a specific effect. Your prayers can also be pointed that a space in your life might begin to produce fruit. Fruit in your marriage. Fruit with your kids. Fruit in the workplace. Fruit in your friendships. Yes, the formation of us on the inside, but also fruit on the outside. One of the early church fathers Bede talks about how important this is to go to God and to ask something specific for him. And his phrase is short and sweet. He said, God loves for us to ask him for things because God loves to give us things. He doesn't love to hear requests just to siphon through and filter through and know that, well, I'm glad they recognize I can give it, but I just may withhold from them. He says God loves us to ask him for things because God loves to be generous and to give us things. And for the church, it's why intercessory prayer is so important. Specifically praying for folks for people, for missionaries. Not just that we'd be shaped in a specific way to interact with them appropriately, but that God would shape and change other people. That God would bring about fruit in our kids, fruit in our coworkers, for our international missionaries that are serving overseas, that God would shape our missionaries in such a way that they're steadfast, committed, able to take on any hardship and also that their labor would produce fruit in the nations. That people would come to faith because of their work and because of their labor and because of their proclamation of the gospel. It is good to pray internally, but also good to pray pointed prayers that produce fruit outside of us. So, you know, I know some folks, they they get in the habit of having a little three by five note card And they begin to write very specific things that they're praying for. Places where they want rain to fall and fruit and crops to grow. And they set it by their bedpost. And each evening they may grab that three by five card and just quickly pray through this. Lord, would you bring rain on these areas? 
Would you bring rain on my marriage that there might be fruit? Would you bring rain in the workplace that there might be fruit? Would you bring rain on my kids that there might be fruit? Would you bring rain on our missionaries and their work they're doing that there might be fruit? Pointed intercessory prayer. James calls us to it. And so our prayers, James says, ought to have a pointed nature to them. And this is the last and final point James makes in verses 19 and 20. That our prayers oftentimes and regularly ought to be for prodigals. Those who are wandering from the faith or have never come to faith. This is James chapter 5 verse 19. He says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from their error, from the error of their way, it'll save them. Save them from death and it'll cover over a multitude of sins. For James, it wasn't unfrequent or uncommon that people that had come to faith in Jesus and their congregations had begun to, to wonder, to drift to go back to their old way of living. And James says, if anybody goes to that brother or sister, corrects them and brings them back into the fold, it will save them from death and it will cover over a multitude of sins. I was thinking about my dog when I thought about this. My golden retriever, just over one year old. And man, he's a wanderer. He picks up a sniff and baby, that dog is gone. We were just at the, the beach yesterday, small little 80% enclosed beach. He found the 20% that was not enclosed. And man, he caught the, the scent of a dog across the street, ran up the hill, ran across the street to that dog, I had to run up. Just to preface this, my dog's name is George Washington. So I, I run up the hill and I'm saying, George Washington, get over here. My dog has wandered, and I go to correct the error of my way to bring him back across the street. What my dog doesn't know is me going after him to correct him is saving him from a lot of pain. Possibly getting in a fight with another dog who's a bit more aggressive. Approaching somebody that's not a dog person. Believe me, they're out there. There's not many, but they're out there. Approaching someone who's not a dog person that gets upset the dog is next to them. Even possibly with my dog running across the street in a worst case scenario getting hit by a car. There's a sense that me trying to correct my dog from having wandered off saves him from a lot of pain and even death. It's also a note to him that, hey, the joy is down here. The joy's in the sand. The joy's in the ocean. The joy's in chasing your ball and swimming around and rolling around on the beach. James wants to make a point to the church that there are people that are wandering. There are people that are drifting across the street. And man, if, if we don't go after them to correct them, if we don't go after them to bring them back into the fold, there's a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, and even death out there. But not only that, 
man, when you're back in the house, back with the congregation, that's where the joy of the Lord is. Jesus talks about this similar idea of folks that have lost coins and they go looking for coins. Or they've lost sheep and they go looking for sheep. This is Luke chapter 15, verses 7 and 10. This is coming on the tail end of having found the coin and having found the sheep. Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, when this person found that coin, found that sheep, and they were filled with joy, in the same way, there will be even more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous person who do not need to repent. In verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that returns from the error of their way. From one sinner that returns to the fold. You know, for us, that's why membership is actually such a wonderful, great thing in the church. It allows us to know, hey, who has said this is my home church? Who has said this is my congregation? Who has said, man, I want to follow Jesus? And so when that person begins to drift, to wander, to go across the street, we get to go correct them. We get to go bring them back in church. The good news about bringing somebody back is we get to share in that joy. Saving them from pain, from heartache, even death. Bringing them back into the presence of God, the fellowship of believers. Not only is it good for them, it is good for us. When the sinner repents, the sinner is joyful, but the angels rejoice as well. When a sinner repents, they're filled with joy and we are filled with joy as well. Church, part of the key to living a joy-filled life is continuing to call people back to the fold. So my question this morning is, who's someone in your life? Someone in your community group? Somebody you serve with? Somebody you're just really close friends with because you've been coming to this church for a long time? Who is somebody that you need to go correct? Who is somebody that's drifting, that's wandering, that you need to call back to repentance? James says, man, when we go to the Lord to pray, our prayers ought to be for prodigals, those who have wandered. You know, when I think about this idea of wandering, I can't think about, can't help but think about myself and the times when I have wandered, drifted, headed across the street. And the Lord oftentimes through people has been so patient and gentle to bring me back into the fold. In fact, it's one of the grand narratives of scripture. And just to remind us as we turn to the table this morning, is that as we're alive, as we are creatures of God, we have to come to terms with kind of our own existence. How did we get here? The Christian story tells us that because of God, because God created the heavens and the earth, everything in it, above it, and below it, in a sense, we are his creatures. And even being creations of God, we have wondered 
We have drifted. We have been in error. And because of that, we've been separated from God. The same way that George Washington's drifting from me across the street separated him from me. Our drifting, our wandering as humanity has separated us from God. But God has come running and calling to us. Prodigals on the run. God has crossed the street to bring us back into the fold in the person of Christ. By God's grace, we can return to Christ. In fact, when we come to the table of communion, it's oftentimes our act of, again, afresh, returning to Christ. We're going to close with this scripture. This is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess doing our best to not wander and not drift and not cross the street. Verse 15. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way to wander and to drift just as we are, yet he did not. He was without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.